Good morning. Good morning. Hope you enjoyed the cartoon show. <laughs> uh, I'm old enough that I grew up in a time before TV, believe it or not. And in those days, uh, we used to spend a lot of time in movie houses. And the typical pattern was to show a couple cartoons before the main feature. So. Uh, I always enjoyed that, and I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, it's a delight for me to be here in New Zealand. This is the first time I've visited your fine country, and I'm really impressed with the, the pristine landscape, with a few minor exceptions, uh, and the beauty of this country. It's just amazing. And uh, I've been very honored uh, to be in your company. Uh, Lawrence has taken great care of me during this time. He's kept me busy, but that's good. I want to maximize the the opportunities to, to help wherever I can while I'm here. And uh, I was very much impressed with uh, what I heard last night from all of you, the amazing things that people are doing. Uh, you know the definition of an expert? It's the guy from out of town. <laughs> but we're all experts. This is the age of peer-to-peer. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't need political hierarchies where people have power over other people. We have to claim our own power. And we have to uh, do what we need to do in order to develop ourselves and our communities and to gain independence from the structures that are destroying our planet, destroying our social structures, and, uh, and taking over political power. Uh, the title of my talk is called Reclaiming the Credit Commons. And, of course, that begs the question, what is the credit commons, which I'll explain in a minute. But first I want to share with you uh, a vision that I have. I have this vision of the caterpillar and the butterfly, and that uh, what we may be going through today is a metamorphic process, a societal metamorphosis, similar to that phenomenon It seems like uh, during this current period with the financial meltdown, with climate change, uh, peak oil, resource depletion, um, pollution, all kinds of other problems that are converging together at this particular time, that something unprecedented seems to be happening. And we are at a juncture. We have a choice. Either we continue to compete with one another in a suicidal uh, conflict to control the remaining resources, or we learn to cooperate and share across national boundaries, uh, across religious divides, and uh, across uh, the planet. <coughs> so we have to develop our communities in every way, and economics is one of the key aspects of that. And this statement from the Earth Charter, I think, is uh, very important, and we need to take it to heart. We are one people on one planet with a common destiny, and we have to realize that and act accordingly. So, let me just review for you a little bit about how the metamorphic process works. And uh, I've been in correspondence with people who know a lot more about this than I do. Elizabeth Satoris, uh, she's an old friend, and uh, we've corresponded recently. 
Dr. Lawrence Victor, a friend and colleague from Tucson, Arizona, uh, and Nori Huddle, who first introduced me to this concept of the butterfly and the metamorphic process. Uh, what happens is it begins with a tiny egg that's deposited on a leaf. And uh, at one point, a tiny little worm will eat its way out of this egg, and then it starts to devour the leaves of the plant. And eventually, it may defoliate that plant completely. Uh, as a gardener, I've had some experience with this. Um, in Tucson, I had a garden, and my friend Donna at the time, uh, we had a garden in our place, and we had some chili plants. And one day she came over and she said, uh, come look at this chili plant. All the, all the leaves are gone. And it didn't take us long to discover who the culprits were because there were no leaves, there were only stems left. And we saw these two big tomato hornworms, the big green ones. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had devoured every leaf off that chili plant. Not only the leaves, but also the chilies, which amazes, amazed me. Uh, so we dispatched them. And eventually that plant came back, but uh, it was a terribly destructive process. But uh, what happens, as, as this process continues, uh, these caterpillars will shed their skin four or five times, a process called molting because as they get too big for the skin, they have to get rid of the skin, and then they develop a new one. But that, that comes to an end as well. At some point, the caterpillar stops growing, and the shell hardens, and it goes into a dormancy stage, and the caterpillar body begins to break down into what you might call a nutrient soup. And what happens then is that these imaginal cells that were always in the caterpillar body become active. And they start to multiply, and they start to join up into the new organs that will form the, the uh, butterfly body. And at some point that process completes itself, and the shell cracks open, and the butterfly crawls out, so it swings and flies away. And the butterfly behavior is entirely different from the caterpillar behavior. Uh, the butterfly flies around, sips nectar from flowers, and pollinates them in the process, has sex, and then the females lay eggs to start the cycle over again. So I have the sense that what we're going through today as a human species is a metamorphic change. And uh, <clears throat> the old systems are breaking down. Our education system fails to educate. Healthcare system does not provide health. Food system is poisoning us. Financial system is causing increasing disparities in wealth and power. So if we can keep this vision in mind and imagine ourselves to be the cells of the new butterfly of humanity, that makes me very hopeful. But if we're to change things, we need to understand what the problems are and the source of the problems, and then proceed to create new structures that don't have those defects. When we think of the commons, most uh, 
people think of a, a pasture or a field where the villagers took their animals to graze. And the thing about the commons is open access. People have open access to it. Uh, there are regulating mechanisms, of course, but they're determined locally by the people themselves. <laughs> well, what has happened over the last many hundred years is uh, privatization of the commons. And this has kicked into high gear in recent decades uh, with the Washington Consensus and globalization as it has been foisted off the world by the uh, oligarchies uh, that run our corporate entities, our banks. So it's a matter of privilege, exploitation, and class conflict uh, that is coming about because of this extreme privatization. And early on you had the Enclosure Acts in England that privatized the commons, uh, gave them over to the lords, and then everybody had to pay the lords to gain access or to uh, they had to leave the land and move into the cities to uh, provide labor for the Industrial Revolution. And uh, you have clearances, legal privileges, limited liability of corporate entities, and especially preferential access to money. So the elitist approaches uh, take the form of monopoly, oligopoly, cartels, and corporations typically seek to privatize their profits and socialize costs. A company will come into an area, cut down all the trees, then leave. Or they'll strip mine the coal and then leave. And leave that mess for somebody else to clean up. What's oligopoly? Oligopoly is like a monopoly, but it's many instead of one. The reason why I have focused on money uh, for the last 30 years is because money has become the primary lever for centralizing power and concentrating wealth. And statistically, uh, we see how this works. In the United States, for example, the gaps between the income classes, if you divide it into quintiles or percentiles, you see increasing gaps between the income classes. The old saying is that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Well, it's not only the poor get poorer, it's the middle class getting poorer, and the middle class is uh, basically being eliminated. So society is bifurcating into two groups. You have a, a rich, powerful elite, and the rest of us are on our way to being serfs in a new feudalistic society. Now, the patriarch of the Rothschild dynasty, dynasty uh, said, give me the power to create a nation's money, and I care not who makes its laws. Because you can control the lawmakers and you, you can get them to legislate anything you want them to. The one thing that people uh, generally fail to realize is that money has evolved over time. We still talk in terms of money as if it were a thing, a commodity, like gold and silver. But gold and silver is no longer what we use for money. We started with gold and silver coins that were typically passed from hand to hand. And then later, uh, banks created paper notes that were symbolic representation of gold <coughs> or silver on deposit. 
and then later credit money. So the substance of money today is simply credit. And credit is based on a promise. Uh, if you take a, a bank deposit, uh, we probably all have a checking account at a bank somewhere. You think you have money in the bank. What you have is a number in an account. And so that money, what we think of as money, is simply a liability of the bank. It's a credit instrument. Likewise, the notes of the central bank, uh, I have a couple of New Zealand Reserve Bank of New Zealand, this is $20. Uh, it says, this note is legal tender for $20. Well, it doesn't say what a dollar is to begin with. And uh, basically, this is a legal obligation of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. So again, it's, it's credit, it's the substance of the money. So people confuse the form of money with its actual essence. So money is credit. It doesn't matter what form it takes, whether it's paper notes or deposits in a bank account. Why, well, why do we trust these forms of money? We trust them because we've grown up with them and everybody else accepts them in payment for whatever we want. But are they trustworthy? We're beginning to have some doubts about that, especially with regard to the U.S. dollar. So let's talk about the credit commons. What do we mean by the credit commons? Think about what we do. Credit means deferred payment. Uh, if a business sells to another business on open account, they will ship the goods that were ordered and then send an invoice. They're basically trusting the buyer to pay at some time in the future. Sorry. So this credit is what underlies all political money systems. You are obligated to accept Reserve Bank of New Zealand notes in payment for any debt that's owed to you. That's what it means to be legal tender. And uh, the Federal Reserve notes in the United States say it, uh, say it a little different. It says uh, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Public and private. Big distinction. A public debt is a debt you owe to the government. A private debt is a debt you owe to another individual or company. What gives the government the right to say that its money should be a legal tender for something you owe someone else. We'll get to that again in a minute. So we can represent the credit commons with this oval. And uh, we all put into the credit commons because we're all giving each other credit whether we realize it or not. But who can take out of the credit commons? Who can draw out credit? Uh, right now, the credit commons has been privatized. It's been taken over by the central banks and the banking system. So the only way you can gain access to the credit commons is by borrowing from a bank. So you go to the bank and say, uh, I need $100,000 to buy a house. <coughs> Not that that's enough to buy a house anymore. 
<coughs> the bank will say, well, let's check your credit rating, let's look at your assets, let's see how much this house is worth. They say, okay, we'll give you the $100,000 loan. They make two entries to the books. One is your mortgage note which you signed says I owe the bank $100,000. That's an asset to the bank. And on the liability side, they have a deposit to your account, $100,000. So by making two entries on the books, they've created $100,000 in credit. And uh, anyone in the New Zealand dollar zone is obligated to accept in payment those 100,000 credits. So <coughs> access to credit is controlled by the banking cartel. They decide who gets access and on what terms, how much interest you're going to have to pay. National governments, however, have extraordinary access. There's a collusive arrangement between politics and finance. And the model for this was created in 1694 with the founding of the Bank of England. At that time, William III, William of Orange, came to power, and he was fighting against France. And war is a very expensive proposition. He needed money to pay for the war. So William Patterson, with some of his cohorts, came to the king and said, all right, king, we'll give you the money you need if you will give us a privilege. The privilege was to create banknotes and lend them into circulation. So the, banks, the bank got to collect interest <coughs> on money that it created out of everybody's credit, and the king got to spend beyond his tax revenues. Now, in the United States, this has taken a, an amazing turn. We have run budget deficits for most of our 200 and some odd year history. <coughs> so the government gets to spend beyond its means. Direct taxes are very unpopular. And so governments have found a way to avoid taxing the people directly. They use inflation, which is called the hidden tax. What happens is uh, when they monetize the debts of the government, that adds money to the money supply, <coughs> but it doesn't add any business services uh, to the economy. So you have more money chasing the same amount of goods and services, resulting in increasing prices. So the basic problem with the conventional money and banking system is we have these uh, two parasitic elements, interest and inflation, that are draining value from the economy and forcing the rest of us to do with less. So if we're going to empower ourselves and our communities, we have to take control of our own credit. When we take control of our own credit, that enables greater self-reliance and self-determination, which leads to greater levels of cooperation and sharing, which ultimately enhances 
equity, peace, and sustainability. So how do we reclaim the credit commons? This is job one. We have to become less dependent on national currencies as a means of payment. And this is the thing that I keep hammering on, uh, which people have trouble getting their heads around. But I'll try to explain how we do that in a minute. Job two is that communities must become independent of national currencies as a measure of value. You see, national currencies serve two purposes, both a means of payment and a measure of value. How did that happen? Legal tender laws are the cause of this confusion. Let me give you uh, a little bit of history with regard to the United States. In the United States, after the Constitution was ratified, the United States had to come up with the <laughs> definition of a United States dollar. Well, there were already dollars circulating in the colonies, but these were Spanish <coughs> dollars. They were silver coins that came from Spain were minted in Spain. And these coins, they varied a little bit in weight and fineness depending on when they were minted. So they set out to determine what is the average silver content of these Spanish silver dollars. And they came up with a figure, decided that 371 and a quarter grains of fine silver would be the U.S. dollar. And so they minted U.S. dollar coins according to that specification. Now, banks in those days were independent individual companies, and each bank issued their own notes. So you might have the Bank of Schenectady issuing a $5 bank note. And uh, it said $5 on it, but people could decide for themselves whether it was worth $5. In the absence of legal tender, you can decide the value of a currency just as you decide the value of a share of corporate stock. And you can say, well, this $5 bank of Schenectady note, I'm not sure about this bank. It may be a little shaky. <clears throat> I'll give you $4 worth of merchandise for it. Nothing. So this is called discounting. In the absence of legal tender, the market will discount inferior banknotes, inferior kinds of money. But under legal tender, when the government says, oh, well, you know, we got these banknotes that we're issuing, and yeah, we're issuing an awful lot of them now, but uh, you're going to have to accept them anyway, just as if they were silver. So well, this is the famous Gresham's Law. Gresham's Law says bad money drives good money out of circulation. That's what he means. This only happens under legal tender. Without legal tender, good money will drive bad money out of the market, not the other way around. So when we talk about two parties to a trade, we've got a buyer and a seller in every transaction. The seller provides goods and services to the buyer, 
what does the seller get in return? Well, that depends on how do the payment. We can have a barter transaction. Everybody knows what barter is. We can use some third-party credit instrument. Remember, buyer and seller are parties one and two. We use somebody else's credit instrument as a payment medium. Well, that's official currency <coughs> or bank credit. It can also be private currency. You might imagine, uh, what's, what's a major supermarket chain in New Zealand? Pack and save. Yeah. Well, you can imagine Pack and Save issuing their own private currency notes, maybe by paying their suppliers or their employees. Would you accept Pack and Save currency? Why would you accept it? Because you buy groceries. If you shop at Pack and Save, even if you don't shop at Pack and Save, so many other people do. So you know you can pass on the note. And as long as you have some sense that the company is going to remain solvent and not close their doors, you'd be willing to accept the private currency because you know you can cash it in for real goods and services. Another possibility is the direct credit clearing amongst buyers and sellers. And this is where the real power lies. So to review, we have barter trade, goods and services for other goods and services. We have official currency. Either bank notes or deposits in a bank. And that looks like this. Somehow the buyer gets a hold of a bank note and uses that to pay the seller for goods and services. But we can also have private credit instruments such as the pack-and-save example is talked about. Another possibility is uh, rebate certificates. Now, there's been a lot of talk lately about loyalty programs and, and rebates, and uh, this can be a, a useful adjunct in some cases to a, a real community currency project. And uh, I would advise you to study the Canadian Tire Money example. There is on my website, reinventingmoney.com, uh, a pull-down menu for case studies. And one of the case studies is Canadian Tire Money. Canadian Tire Money has been uh, in existence for over 50 years now. Canadian Tire Company is a, a company in Canada that has numerous retail outlets around the country they sell tires and auto supplies and petrol and gasoline and other things. When you make a purchase at Canadian Tire, they will rebate you a portion of the purchase price. I don't know, it's one or two percent. And they give you these uh, Canadian Tire notes, which can then be used on a subsequent purchase just the same as cash. So these things can circulate uh, in the community, and they have circulated in the community. There are anecdotes about people being uh, in a taxi cab, finding they left their wallet at home, and offering the cabbie 
Canadian Tire money <coughs> to pay for the cab ride and having it accepted. But you can imagine other transactions as well. What about direct credit clearing? This is the highest step in the evolution of reciprocal exchange. We're still talking about credit, but it's a credit clearing process where an association of tra a traders agree to offset their purchases against sales. Not on a one-to-one -one basis, but on a multilateral basis. So, when you think about it, in effect, goods and services pay for other goods and services, whether we use money or not as an intermediary. Uh, let's say you're a farmer. You sell produce. Um, somebody else sells furniture. Basically, if the farmer buys furniture, he's using produce as a payment medium. Now, typically the farmer will sell the produce for money and then use the money to buy the furniture. But the end effect is the same. Produce paid for the furniture. So we can do this process directly. Uh, in accounting terms, every business has accounts receivable and accounts payable. So in a multilateral association of buyers and sellers, we just clear the accounts receivable against the accounts payable. <coughs> so here we depict the credit commons and members of an association within the commons. So we're carving out a space within our local credit commons in which we can operate this direct credit clearing process and free ourselves of Bank of New Zealand notes, free ourselves of uh, uh, bank deposit currency to some degree. Now it's got to be a gradual process. As we bring more and more people into the association, we can clear more and more of our transactions without using conventional money. Uh, this shows <coughs> how it works. Again, the oval represents the Mutual Credit Clearing Association. And we can talk about two kinds of members, issuing members and non-issuing members. Uh, you can distinguish, perhaps, the green circles from the uh, black circles. What does it mean to be an issuing member? An issuing member is one that has overdraft privileges. It means you can buy before you sell. So your account will go negative. Uh, let's say that we're both members of this association. I buy something from you for a hundred dollars. I'm the buyer. My account is debited for a hundred dollars. Your account is credited for a hundred dollars. So your account goes up, my account goes down. Those members that have the privilege of going negative on their account are the issuing members. So you can think of credit balances as being the money supply within this clearing association. So an issuing member begins the process by buying something from another member. And then those credits can circulate throughout the association. 
eventually the initial buyer redeems his credits by selling something to somebody else <laughs> in the association. This is the way let's works. How many are familiar with let's? Yeah, about half of you. So you already know how this credit clearing process works. You may not have thought of it this way before, but let's is one type of credit clearing association. Uh, I consider let's to be a brand name. There are many other mutual credit clearing designs uh, that have been developed as an offshoot of let's systems. And there are commercial credit clearing associations as well. So now we have a payment possibility involving a credit clearing association. <coughs> so when I accept goods and services from a seller, that seller can accept credit within the association as a payment. The most successful example of a credit clearing association is what is now called the Wehrbank in Switzerland. Wehr in German means we, but it's also an acronym. I won't try to pronounce it because my German is not intelligible. But uh, basically, this was started in 1934 by the small and medium-sized businesses in Switzerland who were uh, suffering from the effects of the Great Depression. The problem during the Great Depression was an insufficient supply of official money in circulation. So businesses together and decided, well, we need to continue to do business with one another. How can we do it without using Swiss francs? So they instituted this credit clearing process, and over the years they've developed it, and uh, after more than 70 years, it continues to thrive. And the last figures I have are from 2004. Uh, 60,000 small and medium-sized businesses in Switzerland cleared more than one and a third billion U.S. dollars worth of transactions. So, again, if you look on my website under case studies, you'll find a case study of the Wehrbank and several documents pertaining to it. There are also some others on my blog. Beyondmoney.net is the, the URL of my blog. Is that website address? Reinventingmoney.com and beyondmoney.net. I'll put those up at the end here. So the point that uh, we need to understand is that decentralized exchange and payment options are the way forward. They provide greater economic stability. They ensure against systemic monetary instability. Uh, they provide a recovery path in case of financial collapse <laughs> and greater equity, social justice, and quality of life for all, in addition to a greater self-reliance in our communities. Now, the important thing when you talk about a currency or a credit clearing uh, system is the basis of issue. Every currency is issued on the basis of something. Even political money, even bank-created currency is issued on the basis of something. Uh, when critics talk about money being created out of nothing, that's misleading. 
Money is not created out of nothing. Money is created out of sin. The question is, is that something of value? Does it have any value at all? Is it the proper basis for creating money? And some bases are correct and others are not. With regard to uh, alternative currencies, uh, we have in recent years a number of designs that have been put forward and implemented. We have many currencies being sold for cash. Examples are Toronto dollars, the Berkshires that are being issued by the Schumacher Society in Massachusetts, uh, the Kimgauer currencies that are quite popular throughout Germany. We have currencies that are given as rebates, like I mentioned, the Canadian tire money. And we have currencies that are spent into circulation, <clears throat> like mutual credit currencies, let's credits, and commercial barter credits. Each of these accomplishes a different thing. And we have to distinguish among them and decide what is appropriate for our community, what will be most empowering for our community. Now the currencies that are sold for cash amount to something like a gift certificate or a traveler's check. They provide uh, a way of keeping currency in the community a little bit longer. But if the currency is redeemable back into cash, as Toronto dollars are, it may not be very long at all. In fact, their experience in Toronto has been that most merchants will redeem the Toronto dollars uh, fairly quickly back into Canadian dollars, even though there's a 10% discount when they do that. So to talk a little bit more about these cash-dependent instruments, uh, the thing that probably most of us are familiar with is the casino chip. You may have been in a casino once or twice in your life, as I have. Not that I particularly like those places, but when you go in, you buy chips for cash, and you play your games, and at the end, you take your chips back to the cashier and you turn them in for cash. So it's a temporary cash substitute that's issued for various reasons. In the case of a casino, it's easier to handle the chips than it is to handle paper money. Then you have the gift certificate type of currencies, as I mentioned. These really amount to prepayment good services provided by the vendors that have agreed to accept those currencies. So it's a way of capturing money ahead of time. can only be spent with certain uh, retail providers. A traveler's check is a little bit different in that it can be converted back into cash and there are many places that will redeem it. We'll skip over the last one. But the currencies that are most empowering are the ones that require no conventional money and no conventional bank. 
currency that is not sold for cash, that's issued on the basis of some other form of value. This is the kind of currency that actually adds to the supply of exchange yet. So it supplements the supply of official money. So my recommendation is when a community launches a currency, that currency should be spent into circulation. That is, it should be issued on the basis of the transfer of real value as it is in a let's system. A let's credit only comes into existence when someone accepts it in payment for real goods and services. So other mutual credit clearing systems and uh, commercial barter exchanges all provide this kind of supplemental exchange media. Likewise, paper currencies can similarly be spent into circulation when an <laughs> issuer uses them to pay suppliers and employees. There are some basic questions that need to be asked of any currency. We should not be naive. A currency is a credit instrument, and you have to be able to evaluate uh, that instrument. Is it, is it really worthy of your trust? Are you going to be able to pass it on for real value? So first of all, you need to know who is the issuer, how is it issued into circulation, what is the basis of issue, how much of it has been issued, what are the terms of the contract offered by the issuer. A currency actually has an explicit or implicit contract. <coughs> what does it promise? What are the limits on the amount that may be issued? What's the duration of the contract? Is there an expiration date? What is the form of redemption? Is it cash or is it simply in services? Are there any fees, conditions, or limitations associated with redemption? In the case of Toronto dollars, for example, as I said, there's a 10% discount in the amount of cash that you can get when you redeem Toronto dollars back into Canadian dollars, and only merchants can redeem them, and only in amounts in multiples of $100. Can you just clarify for me before we go on, what did you mean by the, the basis or the foundation of the issue? Um, as I said, let's credit is issued on the basis of the actual transfer of value. Uh, Federal Reserve notes are often issued on the basis of federal government bonds or debt, which put no goods or services into the market. So that's an inflationary process. <clears throat> so we need to distinguish uh, bona fide bases of issue from non bona fide bases of issue. And we need to do that uh, for alternative currencies as well. People need to understand why 
So many local currencies have not thrived. So many have come and gone. We have to learn from the experience of the past 25 years. And when people ask, uh, why have so many LET systems failed? Why have so many community currencies become defunct? I say there are a number of reasons. Failure of reciprocity is a primary reason. You know, every currency is intended to promote reciprocal exchange. And reciprocal exchange is simply you put in as much as you take out from the economy. Reciprocity means when you acquire something on credit, you give something back of equal value at some later time. So a currency is simply designed to provide a space in which buyers and sellers can find what they need from whomever is able to supply it. So failure of reciprocity can derive from system design flaws, primarily the improper basis of issue, which includes over-issuance, and this usually derives from inadequate account limits. Now, the original LET system had no provision for account balance limits. And Michael Linton and I have had this 25-year debate about this. And I think he still adheres to the notion that no account limits are not necessary. People will sort it out. Okay, well, that's where we have to agree to disagree. <coughs> Third, uh, the lack of a clear agreement between issuers and users. Uh, in our latest Tucson experiment, Tucson Traders, where we had a mutual credit clearing system augmented by paper notes, uh, we had a, a written contract, written agreement between the administration and the members. And that agreement was intended to uh, eliminate the vagueness of most of the uh, arrangements in credit clearing systems. So people knew exactly what was expected of them. And one of the things that was expected is if someone wanted to drop out of the system and they had a negative balance, uh, they agreed in this contract to first clear their negative balance, either by selling something and bringing their balance back to zero or paying up in cash. The other thing that causes failures of reciprocity uh, is management issues, lack of accountability and transparency, uh, inadequate management procedures and controls, over-reliance upon volunteer administrators. This has been a big one for grassroots organizations. And failure to respond to internal or external threats. Uh, these later uh, issues uh, were clearly evident in the Argentina experience. Uh, I don't know how many people are aware of it, but in Argentina there was a massive social money movement that began around the middle 1990s and uh, it had a, a huge growth spurt when they had their financial meltdown in 2001. There were many trading clubs, or trekkie clubs as they called them, 
and each one or most of them were issuing their own currencies and uh, I went there in 2001 and visited a number of trading fairs that were going on. These things were happening every day of the week and many people were dependent on these trading fairs as a way of subsisting <coughs> because unemployment at that time even among middle class professionals was up around 20% or 30%. And uh, this was a dire circumstance for many people in Argentina. So they found this way to trade with one another, to exchange goods and services, uh, even though they didn't have pesos. They created their own credito notes. Uh, what happened eventually there because of the lack of transparency and accountability, many of the major note-issuing clubs were issued. They abused the issuance. People were selling credito notes on the corner for a fraction of their base value. And so they were inflating those currencies. And eventually the whole network broke down uh, in 2002. And... Uh, since then, they've been rebuilding one local exchange at a time. Hopefully, the next time they try to network together, they will have done the necessary diligence in making sure that issuance is correct and the management is transparent and accountable. Another thing that they did or failed to do was to respond to a counterfeiting threat. Uh, when I went there in 2001, there were also there were already uh, some problems with counterfeiting that they were aware of, but they didn't do anything <coughs> about it. I went there again in 2003 after the whole thing collapsed to try to figure out what had gone wrong, and uh, we discovered that there was massive counterfeiting. Who was behind it is still not clear, but uh, it debased the currency. Not initially, not initially. I think the new currency does. And that's easy enough to implement that everybody can check them out. Yeah, there there are ways to prevent counterfeiting. That's that's not a major problem if you're careful about it. Okay, the other thing uh, that has been a major cause of stagnation and failure is uh, inadequate scale and scope. Uh, even in Tucson. I thought our last attempt, the Tucson Traders, uh, was pretty well designed system. We uh, had a major growth spurt. We got up to 200 in fairly short order, and we were having trading fairs and potlucks, and uh, it was pretty exciting at the beginning. But as time went on, it gradually petered out. We never achieved critical mass, and we never managed to penetrate the mainstream business community. And that's been the typical problem with grassroots initiatives. Uh, these have been based on ideological uh, considerations and the values that, that we have uh, in many of the alternative movements. And we weren't able to convince uh, the business community, the mainstream business community, that they should jump on board. We had about a dozen progressive business members, but that wasn't enough. 
And the other thing is <coughs> failure to penetrate all levels of the production and distribution circuit. Uh, this is typical of the commercial barter exchanges as well. Their membership is pretty much concentrated at the retail level. But retailers, if they're dealing in an alternative currency, need to pay their suppliers. Who supplies the retailers? <coughs> it's the wholesalers that provide the supplies to the retailers. So you've got to get wholesalers involved in the process. And the wholesalers want to pay their suppliers. Who supplies the wholesalers? The manufacturers. And who supplies the manufacturers? Basic commodity producers. The mining companies, the lumber companies, the, <coughs> the farmers. And of course, all of these have employees. So ultimately, you have to get employees involved in the process as well. So what I advise communities to do nowadays is, yes, you can start a let system very easily. You can do it in a notebook. It's good for experimentation, for training, to get people accustomed to the idea of this mutual credit clearing process. But if you really want a robust community exchange system, you need to get the business community in at the very start. They have to be part of the initiating group. If they don't have a say in creating it, it's going to be very difficult to get them involved later on. Hang on for just a minute. We're almost there. And I'll take questions. So <clears throat> what we're doing in India, and what I'm suggesting that other communities do, is to broaden your scope. Look at, look at it on a bioregional basis. Uh, we want to keep the size of our affinity groups small, but we want to network them in such a way that we encompass an entire region where we have a sufficient range of goods and services available to be significant. And uh, in south of India, near Oroville and Pondicherry, we decided to follow this approach. <clears throat> and uh, we've been looking for grant funding to get this process started. I'm not going to go through this whole process because we don't have time today. But I presented it on Guayahiki uh, uh, last week. Uh, and uh, I can share that with you if, you if you want later on. But the first step is to institute measures that promote import substitution. Uh, Jane Jacobs was pretty uh, insightful in her analysis of economics. And I recommend her book, Cities and the Wealth of Nations, as well as uh, books that came after that. She said that cities are the salient economic entities, not nations. A national economy is just an aggregation of city economies. And you have to have healthy city economies in order to have a healthy national economy. And when we talk about cities, we're also talking about the hinterlands that support the city, because the city and the countryside are mutually dependent. Uh, it's unfortunate that the city, in most cases, has exploited the countryside, and uh, this is an imbalance that needs to be corrected. 
uh, as we reorganize economics. So we have to institute measures that promote import substitution. This is the process by which cities develop. Some things that you imported formerly, you want to produce now locally. Doesn't mean you stop import-export. You'll always be doing some import and export, but you'll be exporting other things and importing other things. The next step, and the key step, is to organize the Credit Clearing Association to provide the local businesses with an alternative means of payment that's independent of political currency and conventional banks. Now, once you have that foundation, you can issue uh, a supplemental regional currency on the foundation of the members of the Credit Clearing Association. They can emit their collective credit into the non-member uh, segment of the surrounding community when they buy from a non-member. This might be in the form of notes, or it could be in a stored value card, or in an account ledger. And it's also important to develop social capital <coughs> and basic support structures that strengthen the local economy. Uh, do not dismiss the importance of choral societies and clubs of various kinds. Uh, these create the social fabric. These bring together the, the people into relationships that are personal and develop uh, levels of trust and, uh, and sharing that are very important in supporting a regional economy. Uh, one good example of that is Mondragon in northern Spain. Another is the, uh, the ad hoc cooperative businesses in northern Italy in the region of Emilia-Romagna. And finally, we need to develop an independent value standard and unit of account that is no longer uh, tacked along with the political currency unit. But that'll be a last step, and uh, it's a little more complicated to do that. So that's basically my message to you. If you want more information, these are my websites and my books. My new book, The End of Money and the Future of Civilization, uh, will augment what's in my previous book. Uh, the End of Money is... Uh, it's... Uh, it's in a broader context. It, it describes the money problem in a broader context and provides prescriptions not only for local communities but also for businesses, business associations, NGOs, and governments at various levels. So thank you for your attention, and I hope it's been helpful. Yeah, there is significant development going on in that area. Um, 
few months ago on my blog, I, I posted a uh, uh, an item describing what is currently available. Uh, it describes three systems. Actually, I'll talk about four. Uh, CES is one that many of you are familiar with. It's being utilized for many mutual credit clearing <coughs> systems around the world, especially in Australia, New Zealand. Started in South Africa. I think Tim Jenkins has about 70 LET systems in South Africa using that platform. And he's willing to host any other mutual credit clearing system that wants to get onto that platform. <coughs> so that one's very easy to, to get into. Uh, there's, there are two proprietary systems. Uh, one is called Excel, which is a New Zealand company that's developed a very high level of functionality in their software. And uh, functionally, it's probably the best one available, but it is proprietary. And I don't know what the status of that company is. They had some major management problems uh, a year or so ago, and so the management structure has changed. Uh, a third one is called GETS. Yes? Not good. Uh, they just uh, overcharge on their fees grossly, so they're really competitive with paying interest on money, actually. Uh-huh. Well, thanks for that additional information. Do you know uh, anyone that... Do you know, is Philip Dimitrov still uh, with the company? Mm. Philip Dimitrov? Mm. He was a project manager with them. I believe yeah. Okay, well, we can have a conversation about this later. The other one is GETS, G-E-T-S. It was a platform developed by a commercial trade proprietor, uh, Richard Logie in Scotland. And he had a number of programmers working for several years to develop this platform. Uh, this platform has real potential, and a number of grassroots uh, initiatives have been negotiating with... Uh, Richard for using that platform, and I think that has a lot of potential. It's also being used within the commercial barter sector for something called universal currency, or UC. UC is a, a currency that allows members in one trade exchange to do business with members in another trade exchange, and the trade exchange operators use the UC in order to balance their accounts. Another one, which is open source, is Cyclos, which was developed by Stroham in the Netherlands. And uh, I mentioned our South India project. We started with CES, <coughs> and then uh, some of my colleagues thought that the open source advantage was important, so they shifted over to Cyclos. But uh, they tell me that they've since found that the functionality is not adequate to their needs, so they're going back to CES. Uh, there's supposed to be a new Cyclos version coming out. Maybe others know about that. What's open source? Open source means the program can be uh, modified. You can do what you want with it, as long as you make it available to others. To do so. so basically, the source code for the program is like Okay, I want to make sure I answered your question. Yeah, no, it's good. So, so those are just pathways to make that accessible so that we can pick that up easy. Yeah. The second question I have, <coughs> I'll just make it turn seven three. Um, 
you said just in passing that you've been working with Indigenous culture of Indigenous community in America. Um, this this is not at a high level. It's very poor. Okay. So, have you seen any examples of where these kinds of systems have worked successfully within Indigenous cultures, or where those not in America. groups or any of the groups have made pathways or connections with Indigenous groupings or ethnic groups, and that's kind of worked successfully? Uh, not in America. One of my colleagues, uh, Stephen de Moulinaire, who lives in Bali, he's Canadian, has worked extensively in the South Pacific region with indigenous peoples. And he did a currency project in East, East Timor, uh, working with them on their taboo currency and trying to make a bridge between the taboo and the, uh, the Indonesian government currency. But uh, I would uh, recommend that you consult him for details about that. Yes. I have two questions. Uh, the first one is that you talk about scale. Mm -hmm. um, can, you, can you give us some idea about <coughs> how big it's got Well, you can't separate scale from scope. <coughs> it's both quantitative and qualitative. Uh, if you have a wide enough range of goods and services, uh, it doesn't have to be a lot. Uh, to issue a currency, it only takes one trusted issuer, like uh, save. You, know, you could issue a community currency with one trusted issuer and provide a supplemental exchange medium for the whole community to use. But ideally, you would organize a credit clearing association and get several of those trusted issuers involved at the beginning. I think that has the potential of growing very quickly and uh, spreading very far and wide. Uh, once you get people used to using an alternative currency that there's no doubt about its value, uh, then you can quickly prolific it uh, through the community. Uh, as far as numbers, it's difficult to put numbers on it. When you look at the commercial trade exchanges, there are many that operate with three or four hundred members. But the most successful ones, I think, have upwards of a thousand members. And uh, right now, within the commercial barter industry, you have uh, a consolidation process going on. They started a little bit ahead of the grassroots movement. Commercial barter goes back now about 40 years. And uh, many of the people that started these systems early on are wanting to cash out and retire. And uh, so they're looking for a buyer. One of the companies in the U.S. called IMS has been acquiring a number of these smaller uh, trade exchanges around the U.S., and uh, this is a good thing because now members in one city can trade with members in another city and they're still within the same company. So that makes networking easy. They're all operating on the same procedures and protocols. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we went for the cease one because it was the 
easiest to follow and basically foolproof for people that are not over computer savvy. Mm. Thank you. Well, I do have a question on, well, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the independent value standard and the unit of account. Mm. I know it's a complex thing, but maybe you could give us some introduction. Okay. Uh, we talk about credit. You have to find credit. Uh, typically in a, in a let system, we, we might give our unit a different name, acorn or shell or something, but we give it a value equivalent to the uh, national currency unit. So a let's credit might be equivalent in value to a New Zealand dollar here. <coughs> uh, as the central bank continues to inflate the currency, the buying power of that unit diminishes. So even though we freed ourselves from the dollar as a payment medium, we haven't freed ourselves from the dollar as a unit of measure. So eventually we have to do that. Now we can go back to a silver unit or a gold unit, but any single commodity is subject to extreme fluctuations. Uh, in my first book, Money and Debt, Lucian the Global Crisis, I wrote about this and uh, the need to segregate the different functions of money and how to uh, create a unit of account a measure of value based on a market basket of commodities. So the important thing is that you have commodities that are actively traded in the market. So you have benchmarks as to their value. What we want is something that we can use to evaluate everything else. And so uh, if we take, well, Ralph Borsotti took 30 commodities to define his constant currency. Uh, I'm of the opinion that maybe 12 or 15 is enough if they're properly selected. And I give selection criteria in that book as well. The main thing is that they be actively traded so that you can always see what their value is, at least in national currency. But we define our unit in terms of quantities of commodities, and then we know what the national currency is worth at any point in time. Uh, a lot of people say, well, why don't you just take the dollar as of a certain date? Well, once you get past that date, how do you know except by looking at the prices of commodities? It's like if you think about celestial bodies, everything is moving with relationship to everything else. Nothing is fixed. Well, it's the same way with values. We're talking market values here. And so we have to pick a reference point. What do we pick as our reference point when we measure the movement of celestial bodies? Well, the sun is convenient because the earth revolves around the sun. We could pick the earth. We could pick the earth as the stationary reference point. But certain references have greater advantages than others. Or we could pick a star like Sirius or uh, Polaris. So the main thing is that in picking a reference point for our measurement of value, that that thing be actively traded in free markets. So that's probably enough for me. Yeah. In the back. Could you just go back to the previous 
How do you define an hour? The same thing, yeah. But it's, it's a stationary measurement, you know? Like it doesn't... Well, it isn't. Uh, you need to define it. Are hours traded in a market? No, but could they be in a functional way? Hours of what? Time. Mm. Time doing what? <laughs> Trading labor rather than say. What kind of labor? You see, they, these are the problems with using a, a time basis. Ithaca Hours <coughs> followed that route. Ithaca Hours was started in 1991, I think. Michael Linton and I visited Ithaca a year or two before that, and uh, Paul Glover decided to start a LET system. And that lasted about a year or so, and it sort of petered out, so then he started the Ithaca Hours currency. Uh, Ithaca Hours was a pioneer, and it got a lot of good media attention, uh, drew a lot of attention to the possibility of alternative exchange media. But people always had the problem, well, what, what's an hour worth? And uh, so they arbitrarily said at the time, well, it's 10. Well, here we are, 18 years later, what's an hour? Basically, I was still talking about $10. So they really haven't detached themselves from the dollar standard. We need to have something that we can clearly identify. If you look at the price of silver, for example, that would be a better way to define the unit. If you look at the price of silver 18 years ago and the price of silver now, you can clearly see what a dollar is worth in silver terms. And if you take a, an index, like the Wholesale Price Index, you can clearly see what a dollar is worth in terms of wholesale prices. So defining a standard in terms of commodities is just turning the index upside down. It's the reciprocal of an index. If you understand an index, you understand a commodity standard. Well, each individual, each individual transaction involves a judgment by the buyer and the seller. It's a negotiated process in deciding what this thing is worth. But it's also an investment personal energy, and investment energy is something that you can use to
does the value standard need to have a fluctuating? That was my question. I didn't articulate it very well. But can't it be fixed? Like if we all agree that an hour means this, why does it need to be based on something that does go up and down and fluctuate? Uh, I'm afraid this could turn into a long conversation. Sounds like an important one. But maybe we can schedule time tomorrow to do that. Can I ask you a different sort of question over there? Because I'm really interested in this problem, it seems to me, between a, a currency that's based on care, national currency, and sort of issued on, on, on a purchase against the national currency like a gift voucher, as against uh, a sort of a complementary currency that has based on a value, value transaction like a lens. Because essentially the problem with the, the let schemes, or what you might say the true complementary currencies, is everybody's got to be on board. Everybody's got to understand it. Everybody's got to buy into the fact that that system out there is crap. The problem is that most people don't see it that way, right? Everybody doesn't think, have oh, to buy into it. It's fine. It's going on. You know, things are working. I'm doing my transaction. Because the advantage to me of like a gift voucher system or a cash-based one is the pundits don't have to know that's the local currency. They don't have to care. As long as they find value in it, as long as they accept it, then it works. Because the issue to me is, does it work for the widest number of people in a, in a community? So my question to you is, can't we mix these things a bit between cash-based ones and sort of more, um, like I say, true complementary ones? Because what I'm trying to look at, here I come from, is basically having a gift voucher that supports an alternative economy might say like organic growers and local craft people, people do local use local materials. So it's having that impetus to develop that economy, have that input substitution you might say to what to, to good goods and services, supporting those people, and they are the people that, that give it credibility. And people just say, well this is a good good voucher. I can use it. It's backed by all those people producing good goods and services. It can then Come a, a local currency without anybody knowing it's coming from a local currency, and 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 it seems to me that the issue to me is that we can get really bogged down into what's a really good currency, but is it what people will use and accept? And that was one of the things said at the end about the failure is that the normal people <laughs> or normal businesses that that don't see the problem with the present currency system don't buy into it. So can't we mix those things a bit? Can't we just because we've got to start somewhere where where people don't appreciate there's, there's real problems with it? Yeah, I understand the question. Let me answer. Uh, you can ask the Toronto dollar people to answer that question. They've had ten years experience with it, and they're not satisfied. And they got pretty good buy-in at the beginning. They even got the mayor to help them launch it. Uh, as I tried to point out earlier... I just want to say that, because that's not what I'm really thinking about, because it's not a gift voucher system, really. Yeah, it is. It's a substitute dollar system for a particular group. Well, what do you mean by a gift voucher system? Well, because a gift voucher system is a loyalty thing to certain types of vendors. How is, it put, into, how is it put into circulation? Well, uh, uh, that's where it's cash-based, because the members... People like buy it for cash. Or the organic sellers, like, we've got a, uh, a shop that sells organic food and he was trying to get producers that he could pay in an alternative currency for producing it. So we, we could do a, a local economy like that and, and that's and it would be gifted into circulation by, just by being bought or by being given to employees as a top-up or as a rebate 
uh, like the car one or whatever. Okay, well that's so, not cash based then. You're not selling it for cash. Well it is because the gift voucher is bought by the members in New Zealand dollars and we'll put that in the so we've got this problem of uh, the value being based on the New Zealand dollar. I see. But that's why it's a mixed thing to me. And it gets it around this problem. Well, I think you're you're assuming that everybody has to buy into the to the idea that the uh, existing system is messed up. They don't. All they all they have to do is see that there's some advantage to participating in something else. And uh, if uh, Pack and Save were to issue their vouchers by paying employees or paying suppliers, uh, it would clearly be acceptable to most everybody. You know, that's what we're doing. We're saying that the pundits don't have to recognise anything about the system. Yeah. But rather than pack and save, we, it is a group of, of alternative, for lack of a better word, producers, yeah. organic growers, local craft people, people using local materials, etc. So, and that's where the loyalty is too. It's a loyalty voucher that supports them. So why do you need cash? Why do you need anybody to buy them for cash? You've got to buy the gift voucher, don't you? And, they've got to, and we've got to issue the gift voucher. To the, to the members, and so it's, and it's redeemable by cash at a discount, like in Toronto. Yes. I'm sorry. That's it. This morning tea. We got a crazy busy day. Just uh, mob Tommy. Three days. Day. Day. <laughs> 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 he doesn't have to sleep before midnight. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a cup of tea, and Tom probably deserves a cup of tea too. Yeah. About yeah. Here, so. <laughs> Thank you.